So tonight, we're going to be looking at the story of the angels. And for me, I didn't grow up in church. And so when I started going to church, there was a lot of things that people assume everyone knows about church, but sometimes that is not the truth. There are people in here that are like, yep, I don't know what you guys have been talking about tonight. So, so one of those things, I'd gone to church for a couple months, and uh, we, Christmas time was coming, and they asked me if I would read scripture in the, in the Christmas play. And so I thought, like, okay, I'm in eighth grade, that's kind of weird, but see, there was a girl, and this girl was also in the play, so I thought, yeah, that sounds like a really great idea. I would love to read scripture for your Christmas play, even though I have no idea what's going on. Um, and so, because I was just reading scripture, I didn't have to go to any of the practices. I didn't really know what the play was going to be about. And I had never heard the Christmas story from like a church, a church perspective. So it's the night of the play, and I, I read, actually, I, I read the passage we're going to look at today, and I watched this play unfold, and the whole time I'm thinking like, these guys made a horrible play. Like, there's shepherds, there's angels, there's a baby, but there's no Santa Claus. And there's no stockings, and there's no Christmas trees, and there's no Frosty the Snowman, or any of those, you know, like, cartoons, like, The Grinch wasn't even there. And I thought, man, these guys really are lame. They have no idea what Christmas is about. But over time, being around church, I realized that, you know, there's, like, the story the commercial Christmas American story, and then there's like the biblical story of Advent and the birth of Jesus and, and what we celebrate in church, and the, those are two different stories. But something interesting happened, right? So as I was kind of foreign to this, this biblical story, I was introduced to it, and we kind of rush over things, and, and we tell the story as if everyone already knows it, and a lot of times we don't take the time to consider what's going on there. And so I heard about shepherds, and for me, shepherds were like a backdrop or, or a prop or at best a minor character that stood in the background, and I had no context. I had no understanding of what the shepherds were, who they are, what their significance was, or why it would matter that angels talked to them. It was just like, well, shepherds, yeah, duh, they're shepherds. So tonight we're going to look at the role of the shepherds. Last week, Ricardo did a phenomenal job of talking about um, Christmas through the lens of Mary, this, this poor, pregnant teenager from a no-name town that nobody really knew or cared anything about. And tonight we're going to look at the shepherds. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. You guys can meet me there. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. This is what we find. <clears throat> and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. So we've been reading through this true story project. And at the beginning of the Bible, we see that God creates the world. He creates everything good. Sin enters into it. Everything goes bad. You get Noah in the flood. And you get this guy, Abraham. And God makes a special promise with Abraham. He says he's going to bless Abraham so that all nations would be blessed. And we see what Abraham does for a living. He's a herdsman. He has flocks. In other words, he's a shepherd. And then he has a son, and it's miraculous because they're old, and some of you guys have heard this story, and he's also a herdsman or a shepherd. His name's Isaac. And then Jacob continues this tradition. The family is a family of shepherds. So what we would call the patriarchs or the founders of this faith were all shepherds. They had flocks. They had sheep 
and goats, and they would travel around, and their sheep and goats would eat plants, they would graze, and everything was good. Well, Jacob has 12 sons, and one of them's name is Joseph, and if you guys have been following along, then you remember Joseph's brothers didn't like him, because he was that younger brother that, you know, always bragged about how, like, dad got him a new jacket. I got my new jacket here for Advent, because we have to dress up, and I don't own anything nice, and I hate dressing like this, but, so Joseph... Joseph gets this new coat, and he has these dreams about how all of his older brothers will bow down to him, and older brothers don't really like that kind of deal. So, so they do something really mean. They, they beat him up, they leave him for dead, and then they realize, well, we shouldn't do that, so they sell him into slavery in Egypt. And in Egypt, God blesses Joseph, and God gives him positions of power and authority from from literally the bottom, from a prisoner, a captive, all the way up to becoming the number two in charge over all of Egypt. And he's second only to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has this dream that's weird and confusing, and no one can figure out what it means, and Joseph says, I know what it means. It means there's going to be a famine in the land, and this is what we should do. For seven years, we should store food, we should store grain, and at the end of those seven years, when the famine comes, people will come to us to buy this food so that they can live. It will make Egypt very wealthy, and it will help sustain life in the region, and it's a very big turning point in Israel's history. And so Joseph's brothers, everything plays out the way Joseph predicted, and his brothers come down to ask him for food, and it's a beautiful story of forgiveness and and reconciliation between family members, and it's great, but we see this really interesting verse that's very easy to overlook, but it's kind of a turning point in, in the culture here, and it's found in Genesis Chapter 46, verse 34. So Joseph's telling his brothers what they should do, trying to get them into Egypt. He says, you shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock, a.k.a. shepherds, from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So there's a change here. Egypt where the brothers are trying to enter into and live so that they can survive because of this famine does not look favorably upon shepherds. You guys know anything from your world geography class back in junior high? Egypt has the the, um, Nile River Delta, which is very fertile farmland. And if you're a farmer, the way you get money and food is by growing plants. If you're a farmer who grows plants, one of the things you really don't want is sheep and goats that will eat your plants, right? So the Egyptians don't like shepherds. They don't value those types of animals. They don't use them in Egyptian sacrifice. They don't really care to eat them. And another thing, aside of the money, because we know money is very important to people, um, is also this idea of fear. Egypt's enemies were all nomadic herdsmen or shepherds. So God's people spend 400 years in Egypt who does not like shepherds for financial and for power or control reasons. And they start to adapt some of the same mindset. They start to think the same ways because they're in a culture and we can't help but be affected by the culture that we're in. So we have to live intentionally to be able to see these idols in our culture and protect our hearts from them. That's why we do things like the True Story Project, to immerse ourselves in this story instead of the false narrative that our culture gives us. 
And so now fast forward, God raises up Moses. There's the beautiful story of Exodus out of Egypt and into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You get milk from goats, so there's shepherds. You get honey from bees, so there's plants. But God's people have been in Egypt for 400 years. And they too now are looking down upon shepherds. Maybe not as harsh. They wouldn't quite say that shepherds are an abomination, but they're not highly favored. Consider the story of David, who if you've been tracking along with us in the True Story Project, a couple weeks ago or maybe a week ago, we saw, we saw that Saul was king in Israel. But because of a series of bad choices, God said, Saul, you will no longer be king and I will raise up someone else. So God sent Samuel, his prophet, to anoint this new king. No one knew who the king would be. And God told Samuel to go into um, the house of Jesse, that his king would come from this house, this house of Jesse. So he tells Jesse, Jesse gets all of his sons into the room. And he lines them up from the oldest, the tallest, the strongest, the best looking, all the way down the line. And so when Samuel walks in, he sees the oldest, tallest, strongest, best looking guy and thinks, well, clearly that'll be God's king. But he's not. So Samuel goes to the next guy and the next guy and the next guy on down the line until there are no sons left. And Samuel says, what's going on, Jesse? God said that the new king would come from your house. Is there anyone else? And we get this sense that Jesse and and his boys kind of chuckle like, well, yeah, I mean, there's David, the shepherd. How could God possibly choose a shepherd? He's the youngest. In this culture, the firstborn was the one who would carry on with all the prestige and, and the wealth in the name of the family. Everyone else was kind of a supporting role, and and the youngest would be the least dignified or or revered, and so they would inherit this job of of shepherd. But David was a shepherd and, and was crowned king, and he wrote Psalm 23, which is one of the most known and widely quoted psalms that we have, where he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And so we fast forward to the time of Jesus, to the time of this birth. And and this thought process of looking down upon shepherds has continued and continued and escalated. What was once just menial work was now seen as a public nuisance, as people to avoid. And so we have rabbis arguing. How could David possibly, I, I mean David, a man after God's own heart, how could he call the Lord the good shepherd. He must have meant something else. You see, um, Jewish religious leaders would say things like, do not buy milk, wool, or a kid, not a child. I had to clarify that. The nine got a little bit confused. But a baby goat from a shepherd. If you buy milk, wool, or a kid from a shepherd, you're likely receiving stolen property. That communicates something about what the dominant culture thought of shepherds. They would even say things like this. If you're walking along and you see that a shepherd has fallen into a pit, if you don't help him out, don't let that trouble your conscience. You're free to just walk by. After all, it's only a shepherd. In a time where we're having heated conversations about 
Do black lives matter? Do blue lives matter? Do all lives matter? How do we respond? It was clear in this day, shepherd lives did not matter. Nobody would protest for them. Nobody would speak up about the worth of their life. Shepherds' lives were nothing to be esteemed, nothing to lose sleep over. And for the religious leaders, they had reason. You see, God had given his people laws, and God said that you should uphold these laws, these commandments that he gives, and we read through all of them in the True Story Project, and we saw that some of them were weird, and some of them were hard to understand, and some of them made no sense, but God was serious about them. And a lot of them had to do with um, being purified, being clean, and not being unclean. See, God's people didn't want to be unclean, so they avoided unclean things. Well, for the shepherds, whose vocation required them to be far away from the temple to perform these sacrifices of cleansing, they didn't have that privilege. They didn't have those same opportunities. See, God said you should keep the Sabbath holy and you should rest on the Sabbath and do no work, but something was really weird about the sheep. The sheep didn't realize when the Sabbath was coming. They still needed to eat. They still needed to drink water. Sometimes they would still have babies on the Sabbath and the shepherds had to work. They broke the Sabbath. They didn't have access to the ritualistic hand-washing items necessary to be clean. They were out in the fields for long stretches of time to keep the sheep fed and healthy. They couldn't run to the, to the temple and offer up sacrifices. They were too busy with their work. And here's the irony, guys. Their work provided sheep, the number one sacrifice at the temple. Their state of being unclean because of their job provided purification for the nation of Israel. These are the shepherds. So we begin to get a, a glimpse of this as these Pharisees and religious scholars and leaders in the law are, are arguing about what is David doing calling God the good shepherd? How could he say that? And we wrestled this year trying to figure out, okay, we want to do something, this justice of Christmas, not Christmas from above, but Christmas from below, and how can we do this? And who are the common day shepherds? And it's tough, because we, we kicked around the idea of dirty jobs, but even if you're a plumber or you do, like, something in sewers, like, you take a shower and people aren't really that weirded out by you. And there's other professions that probably wouldn't be best to mention from stage, because after all, we are a church, you know, we're kind of artsy and we try to be edgy at times, but, like, there's still some things, you know, some lines you don't want to cross from stage. And, and so one of the things that we came up with was this idea of migrant workers, because we do live in a context, and we know that there's conversation about their role. We also know that our economy benefits. And we know that there's legalities, and we know that it's messy, like many things in life. We, we struggled. We thought about, okay, what would, it, what would it look like? What is our context? What if David had written some words like, the Lord is my good, I don't know, homeless guy that lives under the bridge? feels weird. That should feel weird to hear from stage in a church. But those are some of the same thoughts that the religious elite would have had at that time. It should be uncomfortable imagining God 
like that. And so, as we walk through this, I don't want to just be like a tour guide, like, hey, notice this. Hey, here's an interesting fact about shepherds. Hey, did you know this? But what's the point here? What's the point of this story? What do we do with it today in 2016 in Tempe, Arizona? I think there's some things that we can learn from these shepherds. Let's jump back into the, to the passage. So there's the shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The original language here w- would have the connotation of stood before their face. And as I'm reading this, I start to get confronted because I realize that I have this like sanitized kind of commercial vision of what this scene would have looked like. In my mind, it would have been something like the shepherds kicking back in the grass, checking out the stars. It's nighttime. It's beautiful. And, you know, there were no like wild animals for them to keep away from the flock or anything like that. They were just like kicking back. And I like to think that it was in December because that's when we celebrate Christmas, but we know it would be too cold in Israel for the shepherds to be outside in in December. So sorry, spoiler alert. But so there's the shepherds, and I have this this idea of like these angels kind of magically floating in the sky with like bedazzled choir robes, singing Christmas carols to one another. Fa-la-la-la-la, right? Like something like that. But this isn't really the image that we get because the angels weren't off at a distance. I'm sure the angels would have been aware of the ceremonial laws and the fact that shepherds could not have kept them. But when the angels bring good news, they stand before the shepherd's face on the ground, on their level, next to them, within their presence. Like Ricardo talked about last week, the way Eugene Peterson's talks about Jesus is God moving into the neighborhood. That neighborhood that you would never consider buying a house in, that's the neighborhood that the angels are entering into here. Not worried about their uncleanness contaminating them, but realizing that the good news of great joy for all people that they bring to these shepherds is more important. So the shepherds are down on the ground, standing before their face. This is what they say. The angel of the Lord said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. In verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so my ideas of this bedazzled choir robe of angels singing Christmas jingles to one another is quickly evaporating because in the Bible, when it talks about this host, it's really a military term. It's not a term of kind of floaty, angelic, ethereal beings. It's a term of soldiers marching in. And we see that they're not singing to each other. What's happening would be much more similar to a war cry, a rallying cry, because keep in mind what's going on here. A couple chapters later in Luke, Jesus will tell us, but there's a new kingdom And when a new kingdom comes in, it's typically not peaceful. 
Typically, some things that the old kingdom held in high esteem have to come toppling down, and those don't come down easily. And so we have this host of angels, this squadron or platoon of angels marching in, chanting. No wonder the angel says, fear not. Because if they were just floaty and like jingle bellsing to one another, like you probably wouldn't be afraid of that. It would probably be just kind of weird. But what they see here are these squadrons of angels chanting war cries about this kingdom that's breaking into the world through the birth of a baby. And, and so we can see the shepherd's response. The shepherds, when the angels went away from them into heaven in verse 15, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Notice what the text does not say. The text does not say they went with haste to the temple to purify themselves. The text does not say they went with haste back to their houses and changed their clothes from their unclean clothes that have come in contact with dead carcasses of sheep who have fallen or other unclean animals. It doesn't say they got their life right before they started to go over and meet Jesus. They stopped saying potty words and stopped lying and started being, being really nice people. They experienced great news, and they went with haste immediately to find this baby, this promised baby that they'd been waiting for, that the whole nation had been waiting for for generation after generation. Tonight was the night. Why wait? When God moves and he reveals things, why wait? And so they go to meet this baby. And now this is what's really strange about this whole thing. And some of you guys will be able to relate, relate to this. This story is weird because I have kids. So when I think about, I'll put it to you like this. One of my favorite things about Facebook is on this day. You guys know on this day? Okay, so if you're not on Facebook, on this day is basically you can click on it and see everything you've posted every year on this day. So earlier this week, I saw that on this day was the day that we made public the news that my wife was pregnant with our oldest son. Now, in reality, we had told people way sooner than that. When we found out that my wife was pregnant, we called her parents. We called my parents. We called our closest family, and friends, the people who meant the most to us and shared this really exciting news. When God is making the birth announcement of his son, he doesn't tell the religious leaders. He doesn't tell the priests or the Pharisees. He doesn't tell those in political power. He doesn't tell the wealthy. He doesn't tell the popular. He finds the shepherds. He tells the shepherds. This is strange to us. Not only that, but so we had, we had this thing that happened. So uh, when my oldest son was born, all of our family was in California. So the people that came and visited us in the hospital were our closest friends, which was cool. One of my wife's closest friends decided to invite her brand new boyfriend that we had never met before and then ask if this guy wanted to hold my brand new baby, which was not cool. Thankfully, he said no, but it was this really awkward moment of like, I don't know that guy, and like, 
this baby, like he's a baby, I kind of feel like I might break him when I hold him. I don't want that guy holding my baby. But we see the first people that God invites, these shepherds, these unclean shepherds. And as a parent, I think either God just doesn't know what he's doing or he's on to something. He may see value in places that I struggle to see value. He may see hope in places where I struggle to see hope. These shepherds, guys, in this culture, shepherds were not allowed to testify in court. Their testimony was not valid because they were considered untrustworthy. These are the people that God chooses, and then let's see what happens. Verse 16, they went with haste. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, and when they saw it, they made known, they made known, they testified or witnessed. They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds have had this experience with God. These unclean shepherds are the first people that worship Jesus. And these shepherds are the first people that are going out and spreading the good news that the Messiah has been born. These shepherds who couldn't even testify in court, that's who God chose. That's who God chose to be the first people to talk about his baby boy. This is a remarkable story. And this story has implications for us. Because I think for us, for me, I like to do things that are comfortable. So there are like really easy ways for me to serve, and I really, really like to do those things. But then there are like other ways. Ways that are more difficult, and I think, oh, praise Jesus, there are other people who are going to do that. Thank you, Lord. What we see here that God is comfortable in those areas that cause me discomfort. And in this story, I, I start to feel challenged because I know growing up in my experience with church and at different times, I've had this mindset of we need to go do missionary work. And we need to go do evangelism. And those things are really, really good. Don't hear me saying that those things are bad. But the mindset that I had was I need to bring God there as if God wasn't already there. As if Jesus hadn't already said in Matthew chapter 25, whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done unto me. What if God is already there? And for a room this size, we know that we all have different ideas about where there is. That place that makes you uncomfortable those people that you know you would disagree with, there's no way you could be called to them. What if God is already there? And what if he has a perspective waiting for you to see? It would just blow your mind. Because for shepherds who are unclean, who are the outcasts of society, when they hear things like good news, great joy for all people, their, their ears would 
pick up on that. They wouldn't be so quick to read over the words as sometimes I am. Yeah, 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 all people, that's great. Good news, God. For people who are longing for that that hope, longing for that inclusion into God's family, this truly would have been good news of great joy for all people. And so in this story, we see this missionary call into the least, the last, the lost. We see that. But if we're honest with ourselves, then we realize that there is a missionary call, but there's also a call to introspective, introspection. Because when we're honest with ourselves, we all have a little shepherd in us. We all have those moments in crowded rooms when we feel alone, when we feel like we're the outcast, when we feel like we're the overlooked or the forgotten. And we long for that moment out in the field when the angels march in and they proclaim good news of great joy for all people, even us. So as much as we should be going out and telling it from the mountains in all corners of the earth to all peoples, all tongues and tribes and nations, we should also be remembering this good news in our own hearts because we all struggle with doubt and with fear and with insecurity. And we know that as much hope and joy as there is during Advent, Holidays can be tough times. There's sharp sharp reminders of family members and loved ones who may not be with us. And at times we fear allowing God into these deep places of, of hurt and of brokenness. Theologian and writer and missionary named Joel Van Dyke says, says this, and I love this quote. He says, grace is like water. It flows downhill and pools up in the lowest of places. Think about that. Grace is like water. It flows downhill. In these days of trying to hold ourselves up, look like we have it all together, dress up with goofy jackets for Advent, grace is like water that pools up in the lowest of places. These places of deep hurt and deep pain and deep brokenness within our own lives, within our own stories, grace is there. Do we have the eyes to see it? In communities that have been overlooked and oppressed, grace is there, but do we have the imagination to recognize it? Do we have the humility to step down, to get on the level? The angels could have been the floating, choir-dressed, ethereal creatures, but they stepped in to the shepherd's space. Just like Jesus put on flesh and dwelt amongst us, He moved into the neighborhood. John tells us that at the beginning of his book, and at the end of his book, Jesus says these words. As the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. This call is a call to relationship. A call to relationship with the Father. Because he doesn't view us as shepherds. He views us as sons and as daughters. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a call to relationship, not only with God, but as an overflowing of the relationship with God, a relationship with other people for a purpose. We are blessed so that we may bless others. The shepherds were blessed with this experience so that they could go and make it known. They didn't just stop at the manger. They went out into the city. They went back to their jobs and continued to talk about the good things that God had done. There's beautiful imagery here. 
These shepherds were literally sustaining the lives of lambs who would be used in the Passover feast just a few months later. These shepherds, when they were called to where the baby Jesus laid in the manger, historians would say most likely it it was what was known as a lambing cave, a cave where sheep would go to give birth to their lambs. They would have been most likely familiar with this space. They would have seen thousands of sheep that would be born, that they would nurture, and would grow up to become the sacrifice for God's people. I imagine that this imagery wasn't lost on them as they visited Jesus in this space, this space where so many sacrifices had gone before. And now here we are, part shepherd, part angel bringing good news, part complex human trying to fumble through life and figure it out. And the good news is that we have a good shepherd, a good shepherd who goes before us, who leads us, who protects us and guides us with his rod and with his staff. A good shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one lost sheep because all of us have a little lost sheep in us. The good shepherd who when he finds the lost sheep scoops them up in his arms, holds us close to his heart and brings us back into the family. That's the good shepherd that we have. And so we respond. And guys, I have to tell you, it is an honor and it is a privilege to serve with you in this church. We've seen it week after week during the season. We asked for 300 turkeys and you brought 400. We asked for 1,500 gifts, not realizing we got our math wrong, and we didn't really bring 1,500 gifts last year. That was what four churches combined brought, and we've already crushed that number. We see this response in people that come month after month to not only feed people experiencing homelessness, but eat meals with them, to draw near on their level and hear stories about their lives. We see it in a couple times a month as as you guys give up your Saturday mornings, and we all know how valuable that sleep on a Saturday morning is, to go serve food to people who need a little extra help at the Rio Vista Center, to hand out produce and bread and milk so that children could have good breakfast in the morning, so that they can learn when they go to school and not be distracted by hunger. We see it as you guys host college students and you host refugees and you press into hard issues in our community. We see it as you guys hear this story and respond in your vocation and everything from school teachers to computer programmers and thank God for you people because I can't even figure out my phone. We see it. You guys get the story and you embody it. I had lunch with a young lady earlier this week and she said, "Um, I need to meet with a pastor and tell you something, which is like, oh, this is gonna be a great lunch. But it was really good news. She said, I've been coming to this church for about six months and I hear you guys talk about the story and how God invites us into his story, but as acting in this story, we need to live out the story. and I felt like I needed to do something. And so during that awkward time, and I was like, wait, what do you mean the awkward time? She's like, you know, you guys make a stand up and shake hands with people we don't know, the awkward time. Like, ah, yes, I know the awkward time well. 
She said, during the awkward time, um, I met a young lady who was a teenage mom. And um, there was an older lady with her, and, and I started chatting with them, and, and turns out they're part of a ministry. And she said, I was so intrigued, and they invited me to come check it out, and, and so I did. And I kept thinking, God, I know you're calling me into some, some area where I can tell people about who you are and how good you are. And so she went to this group. It's called Young Lives, and, and they minister to teenage moms. And she said it, it, was, it was almost intoxicating to see the way these young girls clung to Jesus, to see the way they had faith in the midst of difficult circumstances. So she just come, kept going back and back and back. And now she's leading young lives for like half of the East Valley. And she's been doing this faithfully. And she wasn't asking for money or anything. She just wanted to share the good news of what God had done. It's exciting to be around people like you. You challenge me. You encourage me. You make me see that you guys are getting it, and there's hope. In the midst of the brokenness of 2016, we have some amazing stories of the ways God has moved in and through you to display how much he loves his community, his people, this broken world that we live in. We know that things are not the way that they should be, but we also know that we have great hope. Because this baby was born and the shepherds visited him and he lived a perfect life, died on the cross and was raised on the third day, we know that there's hope because he says he's coming back. And so this Advent, together, we remember the hope and we wait and long with expectation together as a community of believers who are trying to live this thing out. Thank you, guys. We appreciate all the hard work that you do, and we're excited to press into Advent with you. Will you guys please pray with me? Oh, God, thank you for being good. You are so good to us. You give, a, you give us gifts. You say, your word says every good and perfect gift comes from you. You tell us that you give us these good gifts so that we would bless others. And we thank you for the ways you use your people here in this room to bless others. God, we know, we know that there are areas of hurt and brokenness and pain. We thank you that you're there already. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see your grace in those areas. Give us imagination to see what you're doing, to understand how you're moving in those hard areas. God, we pray that you would continue to call us out, that you would continue to bring to our attention areas of sin, areas of brokenness, areas of injustice, that you would give us the courage and creativity and boldness to speak the truth of your gospel into those areas, to flesh out what it looks like to be adopted as a son and as a daughter. God, we thank you for that invitation into your family. We thank you that you are the good shepherd who holds us close, draws us near, and brings us back into the fold. God, help us to continue to trust and hope in the reality that you will return, that you will restore all these things that we know are not the way that they should be. We thank you that you love us. Help us to love you more, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.